Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 18. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see the war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Bryant Bales. And I'm Jeremy Hodges. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we'd like to discuss Exodus chapters 13 and 14 today. Uh, We're thankful for you taking the time to be with us. And we want to remind you, Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading, demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible, and emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. Uh, we'd invite you to get in contact with us. You can find us on Facebook. If you uh, search at Walking Through the Book, you can find us very easily there and message us. Uh, you can also email us, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. Thankful for you being here. Um, have Bryant and Jeremy with us. How are you guys doing? Doing really well. Having a great morning. Uh, so, Bryant... Uh, why don't you go over sort of the flow of the program and let everybody know how to get in touch with you. And then, uh, Jeremy, you can let everybody know how to get in touch with you. Sounds great. Uh, well, I preach with, uh, the church that meets in garden city, Savannah, uh, which is, uh, a suburb of Savannah, Georgia. Um, it's on the Eastern coast by the, the ocean side of Georgia. Um, our website is strivingforthefaith.org. And you can find us on Facebook as well. If you look us up, uh, the Garden City Church of Christ, um, you'll get directions and uh, can find out how to meet with us if you're ever in the area. And my email is cartoonguy5 at hotmail.com if you ever want to email me directly. would love to uh, hear from anyone listening if there's ever any questions or comments or anything like that. Um, and as far as the flow of the program, as Stephen has already said, you know, our goal is uh, to just approach God's word with simplicity, but a reverent simplicity, just honoring that the written word as it's written uh, has the power to display its glory as we just read it. Um, so we're going to read through the text, uh, Exodus 13 and 14, and then just make some initial observations, things that uh, maybe more immediately stick out to us from the reading, either things that we maybe haven't noticed so much before, or just things that seem significant uh, in the text itself. And then we'll look at themes, uh, anything that seems to relate to the greater context of Exodus, Genesis, uh, maybe the Old Testament in general, uh, maybe things that we see are connected to the New Testament, to Christ. And then we'll we'll finish up as we always do, trying to make some uh, applications from the reading uh, at the conclusion. 
My name is Jeremy Hodges, and I preach with the Wildercroft Church of Christ in Riverdale, Maryland. Uh, you can find us at wildercroftcoc.org. Uh, you can reach me at jeremy.a.hodges at gmail.com. And we have uh, a Facebook presence as well. Exodus 13, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day, in which ye came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall be no leavened bread be eaten. This day came ye out in the month Abib. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee, a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no unleavened bread be seen with thee. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters." And thou shalt show thy son in that, that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he sware unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee, that thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the male shall be the Lord's, and every firstling of an ass that thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this? Thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand, and for frontless between thine eyes, 
for by strength of hand the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. Exodus 13, verse 17, through chapter 14, verse 12, out of the New American Standard. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done? That we have let the What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took six hundred select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over the, all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-ha-hiharoth, in front of Baal-zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 31 in the New American Standard. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. 
So it came between the camp of the So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. When Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind. Let's try that verse over again. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them to the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. see here is uh i mean is this the climax of the book i mean is this like the 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 main turning point of the book or is just this simply uh, really that's kind of how i look at it sometimes is that the book just sort of leads in and builds up to this point um and of course chapter 14 Mm -hmm. probably one of the most famous if not the most famous an iconic scene uh, in all scripture uh, to appreciate. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things to, to unpack here. But, um, you know, one of the things that I just kind of, you know, uh, noticed, and I think about this every time I read it, but I think it's uh, significant. And, uh, you know, after, uh, you know, y'all can kind of follow with this or, uh, you know, go wherever you want to with this, but, um, you know, the sense that, 
the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will see them again no more forever. That, that God is going to take them away from this situation and from these, this people that, that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that they're seeing right now, uh, they're not going to see anymore. Um, I don't know. That, that just sort of stands out to me each time I read it. Um, you know, what do you guys think about that? Well, I think the answer to that is really in the statements that they make right before he saves them. Mm. Interesting. In verses 11 and 12, is it because there were no graves Mm -hmm. in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is this not the word which we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to die, uh, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And... The answer to that is is really straightforward. Mm. They're so afraid of them. They said it would be better for us to stay back there. You brought us out here and we're just going to die here in the desert. When Moses says you're not going to see him anymore, he's saying, he's like, no, this, this time of you serving the Egyptians, this is over, mm. buddy. This is completely mm. done. Yeah, so encouraging them to understand how separated from their past they are now. Mm. I think that the, it's no, I mean, I know we're going to talk about this in themes. I mean, I, I really don't think it should be any kind of great surprise to us that Paul refers to this as sort of a baptism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because the separation has to be so stark. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. And, <clears throat> and Stephen talked about this being kind of like a climax of the book. It might be the climax of this, of this section, but it, I don't, I think this is just the beginning. Hmm. It, I think the climax of Exodus is actually the stuff at Sinai. I think the stuff at Sinai really makes the some of the some of the really important stuff that makes them as a nation. Right. Th- this is a big turning point. I agree with you. Yes, and it does set them on a course. But the climax of the book, I think, is God actually meeting with them when they get to the mountain, because there were so many promises that were made in Egypt about him, about them going out there. He even tells Moses before Moses ever goes into Egypt to begin with, he says, the reason that you will know that I've sent you is when you come all the way back here and you worship me on this mountain, Mm. the very mountain that he gave Moses the command to go into Egypt is where they have to end up going. And that's when Moses will know that he was sent. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Um, and in fact, what I said and what the, the way, the way that I think often the world thinks of this, you know, thinks of this story. Um, most of what they think of is, is the Red Sea. You know, what's the climax in most of the films that are made about the, about this story? Well, it's the big Red Sea crossing and that whole big deal, mm-hmm. but there's not really a lot yeah. of emphasis put upon Okay, how does how does Moses get the law? How do the people get the law? And so I appreciate you bringing that up because it's not so much the fact that God saved them; it's the fact that God saved them, and He's giving them a purpose. He's giving them okay, this is the way to go, uh, versus just saying, "Well, I saved you. You know, be free, run, be free." You know, and uh, yeah, I, so I, I recognize that that distinction. And uh, so I think that point is very well made. Was there anything else that uh, that kind of jumped out at you guys? Other stuff in the text that really uh, catches me in this, first of all, is you have 
one of the first instances where God gets mad about them crying mm. to him. Yeah. Out of faithlessness. Right. It's amazing to me that they're stuck there with the sea on one side and an advancing army on the other side. And they panic. And they panic so much that they that they that they call out to God. And it says in verse ten, so the sons of Israel cried out right. to the Lord. And then he asks them, he says, Why are you crying out mm-hmm. to me? And at first it sounds like, What can I do about this? But it's quite the opposite. He says, Why are you upset? I told you I mm-hmm. have this. I told you I can take care of this. What are you upset? What are you upset right. about? And I don't know. I just, that is, that's one of those things that, that blows me away. I'm not saying that he doesn't, I'm not saying that he doesn't understand our weaknesses. I'm just saying that our faithlessness is, is kind of upsetting mm-hmm. to God. Yeah, that's interesting. Look at the way that Jesus talks to the disciples. I mean, he calls them oligopistos, little faiths. And some people said, well, it's not really a rebuke. No, it kind mm-hmm. of is. I mean, that's the way he talks to him. He says, why, why didn't you mm-hmm. believe? I don't know. I find it, I find it fascinating. This is one of those times it really tells us about God's character. It really shows us something mm-hmm. about him. Um, 13, 19. God will surely take care of you. And you should carry my bones from here mm. with you. Joseph knew he wasn't going to stay going back staying in egypt was something that joseph knew was not going right. to happen and so he gave commands for them to take his bones up out of there so you have all these people of faith you've got moses you've got joseph but the people themselves a lot of times just kind of get panicky and weird well, okay. and it and it fascinates me that, that he just Responds as right. And I'm not necessarily speaking up in support of them, but like you have to remember, this is a slave people. They've been basically pushed into a situation over the generations that they are subservient to their Egyptian masters. They have been relegated. I, I, I have no doubt that they were relegated to subhuman status because, uh, I mean, you recognize even in. Genesis that the Egyptians hate the shepherds, right? They, they, and it seems like they continue to do that in the land of Goshen. And, uh, you know, so again, I'm not justifying their reactions, but I mean, we, we have a situation in this country. Um, again, I don't mean to necessarily bring this up per se, but, we had harsh slavery in this country. Uh, the The children of Israel were under harsh slavery. Uh, not the kind of slavery that we're going to see later in the old law, uh, which is really... No, you're talking about the, the... No, I think you're right by saying that this is relegated to subhuman. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. This is not the same kind of thing that God uh, regulated under, right. mm-hmm. under the law. That's basically more like indentured uh, servitude, were, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a different thing entirely. And so you have people who have been told all their life, or at least have been shown by the Egyptians all their life, is that you're here to do what we say. 
You're here to build for us. You're here to construct things for us. That's your purpose. And I, mm-hmm. I don't mean to be reading too much in the text with this, but I, I think that explains a lot of their uh, reaction. Um, and I, I hate to use the term Stockholm syndrome, but I mean, that's, that's kind of how I view this is that they're coming out and they're, you know, they're saying, you know, why did we ever do this? You know, this was a bad idea. And, you know, which at the same time helps us understand where they're coming from. But also in the text, we see clearly that, you know what, that, that needs to stop. That mentality needs to stop. Um, and there's going to be a lot of, I think, application aspect to, to go into this, but, um, yeah, no points are all very well made there. I don't want to overlook some of the things that we read in 13 Mm -hmm. either. I know that it kind of feels like two different things are going on there, but what they, this event would be, what would be behind all of the, um, what would be behind all of the explanation to the firstborn that they would redeem the idea that they would have to give up an animal as a sign that God had saved them in their firstborn. He said, the firstborn all belong to me. Mm-hmm. And so they would give up this animal and it would be a reminder. This is okay. Uh, I'm going to sacrifice this animal because the firstborn belong to God. But what's interesting is that in numbers, God takes the tribe of Levi instead of their firstborn. Yeah. The redemption of the firstborn leads into the Levites becoming a special tribe that is mm. dedicated to God and God alone. Mm. Now, if I'm a Levite and I'm reading it, I'm interested in knowing that God's salvation at the Red Sea is the reason I serve as a Levite. God saved this entire nation. He did all these miraculous things. And so I, as a Levite, serve because of that. I mean, I don't know what kind of mentality that that would kind of create in a person. But certainly he would be able to have a different kind of a motivation Mm. if he knew that and Mm -hmm. thought about that and kept that at the forefront of his mind. I know that it would impact me uh, when I'm reading the account. Let's say Mm. I'm a Levite and I'm tasked with teaching people the law and I'm the one who's been reading, who reads Genesis all the time. And then I start to see, wait a minute. God told the people that they were going to give the firstborn. And then later on, I'm the sacrifice from the people because God saved the firstborn. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would be kind of a fascinating thing to, to you talk about servitude, but certainly not in a subhuman way, Stephen. This is certainly right. a servitude based on the fact that God had done so much and they gave back. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like all the serving that would happen in Israel was all to be based in the Exodus and in remembrance of the Exodus. And and I think it is, you know, impressive that you know what what God is doing, he, he doesn't just again, he doesn't just sort of leave them to their own devices. He he already begins to establish some sort of framework for what they're gonna be doing. Um in terms of what they're uh what they're being commanded to do and what they're being commanded to remember. 
And, and, and again, that's so fascinating too. moving ahead. And I, I don't want to break into our theme section unless, uh, unless we're finished, um, with our initial observations. So you guys uh, have anything else to, I did want to talk about a couple of things that are going on, a uh, couple of things in here. So a lot of modern scholarship wants to downplay this event. Right. And they want to talk about this being not that being that they say, well, it's the sea of reeds, which is just a kind of a shallow marshy area. And it was about ankle deep and, you know, and it was only dry because it wasn't very deep. Look, I'm, I'm sorry. It literally says that the water was a wall on their left and on their right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what part they crossed at. I don't know that we know for sure. I know a lot of people have tried to make very bold claims about that. And I think that that's a, a fool's errand. But from the text itself, what we learn here is that there is a wall of water on both sides of the people who go through the mid, go through the midst of the of the sea. That when they bring when God brings the water back down, the water is therefore at that point deep enough to drown an entire army. There is an entire army of people chasing after them. Right. But bringing down the water drowns all of them. This is not a shallow marsh. This is not a puddle. This is obviously a very deep part of the water. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I'm not trying to say that. I know that there are lots of word games that people will play. You know, say, well, no, this, you know, this really means the Sea of Reeds. This isn't talking about the Red Sea at all. Uh, the account itself shows that this is a significant body of water that they're crossing. Well, what, what you're bringing up is really the, the difference between you know, saying, okay, historians are saying this, the world is saying this, um, and, and you're, you're reflecting that bias back upon the text instead of letting the text be the one to motivate you and to show you what's going on, right? I mean, it, this is the same issue that we have with people saying that the days of creation were not a literal six or seven days. We're talking about eons and, you know, millions of years of evolution moving through that. And there's tons of problems with the text when you accept that. And, uh, so, and, and we covered that, I think back in our very first episodes of uh, walking through the book that, you know, that there's just really no way to establish that and still believe what the text says. And, uh, so yeah, I think I think what you're saying is very well well put in a sense where we have to accept what the text is saying. I think the point that you're making about, you know, the waters are are a wall on each side. I mean, if if they had gone through, you know, ankle deep or even, you know, waist deep water on their way through and maybe there was a division there or something like that, uh, you know, why would, why would people be talking about it? Why would, why would we see in the rest of scripture, you know, the, this time being looked at in such a revered and epic way? Um, you know, why would that be such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because this is, this is what the Lord did. And it's a big deal in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on big picture wise. But, um, but yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Jeremy. One, one, one last thing. Mm-hmm. 
as, as far as things that are going to affect them for the rest of their history and things that we're going to continue to, to make an impact on them. The pillar of fire slash cloud. Uh, this is the way that God continues to lead his people. But it, it blows my mind in this case how active it is. It's not just a big fiery cloudy thing that just kind of moves around. It has an active force. That is, it moves from in front of the people to the behind the people. Now, we know later on when they do the, the, the counting that the number of the people is like, what's it, it's like 603, 550 or something like that, I think. So that's the men, 20 years old and upward, are 603, 550. That makes the entire nation who's coming out of Egypt between two and three million people. Mm -hmm. Two and three million people are a lot of people. Yeah. And so for them to be able to cross this body of water is just a phenomenal situation. Mm -hmm. You, it says that he, oh, he dries up the water overnight. And then it says in the morning, he puts his hand, he stretches out his hand. And so the water comes back down in verse 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. So, all night long, God is opening up this water. And then by the morning, he's able to drop it back down. The sheer amount of water displacement that would have to happen for two to three million people to cross at all is staggering. Mm. Added to that, the fact that they were able to do it kind of overnight. Uh, that would be, it would have to be a wide, wide swath of water for them to be able to cross there. And so I don't even, again, we don't know where they cross. We don't know the situation. But when we actually consider the number of people, they consider the things that are going on, and then take into account this pillar of fire and cloud. You don't, it's not like a small thing. We're not talking about, oh, I don't know, uh, something about as thick as a tree trunk. Not when two to three million people see it. <laughs> we have to kind of zoom out a little bit and think about this situation. That is an amazing thing. You're not, I mean, because sometimes I think we have in this, at least in my mind sometimes, I have this um, impression that's given to me by the Chuck Heston movie. Uh, that is kind of claustrophobic between the two things of water and that the pillar of cloud or fire is, is, you know, something about as big as maybe a bigger tree. But when I think about two or three million people and I really give myself a consideration of the sheer number of uh, people coming out of Egypt, that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire seems a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text. Like Stephen was saying, I don't want to, put more on the text than is there. But when we think about these things in a realistic manner, it feels different. 
Well, and mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, I, I'm, I've been, you know, ragging on a lot of the film adaptations, but I do sometimes think that the, you know, that film, the Prince of Egypt, that I think the, the Red Sea parting sequence in that is, I, I, I wouldn't say it's like biblical per se, but it makes a little bit more sense given everything that's going no, on. I think they do a, I think they did a much better job, songs notwithstanding. Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but uh, so out of all the absurd things that that movie does, uh, I think visually, um, you know, there, there's there's some interesting things going on there. And it makes sense. The scale that they have in that film of that, that crossing, I think, might approach a little bit more of what it might have actually looked like. But uh but yeah, no, it's, it's, here's the thing again, you know, it's, it's hard for us to move past those biases. If we've seen these films and heard these stories, um, I mean, it's just like, you know, if you watch the passion of the Christ and you go and read the gospels, well, you know, it's a problem when you start <laughs> seeing Jesus in your mind as being Jim Caviezel. And it's just like, well, this is not right. <laughs> and, and, uh, so you've got to kind of divorce yourself from that and set, you know, you've got to, you got to ex- exit, you got to <laughs> exit us out of the Hollywood mindset <laughs> to be able to recognize, okay, no, no, no. What's God telling me? What's God telling me? But, uh, no, I, very well said. Uh, Bryant, did you have anything that, that was jumping out at you, man? Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is God in verse 17 and 18, not leading the people toward the Philistines to make sure that they didn't have, uh, they didn't have a reason to want to go back to Egypt because of fear um, of war. And I think that's, really interesting that that seems to be something that God said to himself in verse 17, because it says, for God said, the people might change their minds and they see war and return to Egypt. Uh, and I don't know, it just shows that there's such gentleness and care and consideration, you know, just this almost prudent thoughtfulness that God is looking ahead and God is examining the way ahead of them. And God is putting them in the greatest possible position to have confidence in him, um, which I think kind of amplifies the contrast in chapter 14 when the people don't trust God and what he's doing. Um, it's just a, a complete disconnect from the way that God is treating the people with such gentleness as a father and the way that the people see God instead. Obviously, this event has long-reaching implications for really the rest of the of the time of the nation of Israel's life. Uh, you know, as, as as was mentioned, 
you see Paul bringing that up in the context in 1 Corinthians 10 about the fact that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It, it's a sense where he's bringing up the fact that here's what God did with his people. And these things are, you know, as verse 6 says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Don't become idolaters. And he's, he's using that example to say, you know, don't, don't make the same mistakes that the children of Israel did. Um, and so it, it, it's significant, too, that, that this is brought up in that context as well, that even with the sense that God is saving his people, he's making them a nation. This is the birth of them as a nation. There's also the remembrance that their history is a history of unfaithfulness. It's a history where, you know, we're not talking about these heroes that just rise up and they always serve God faithfully. Now, nine times out of 10, they're going to disappoint the Lord. They're going to turn aside from the Lord. Um, and I don't mean to, you know, be uh, depressing about this because this is, this is an awesome thing that God's saving his people. But, uh, you know, that's how it's remembered in scripture. And, uh, well, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Psalm 106 brings up crossing the Red Sea three times. Hmm. And Psalm 106 is a denunciation of their unfaithfulness and response. Hmm. You have some of the phrases that show up in Psalm 106 that even show up in Romans chapter one. Them forgetting what God did for them is absolutely a major part of their history. Depressing, absolutely. Uh, shameful, without doubt. But without this crossing happening the way that it does, then you don't really understand the depth of their failure when it comes to trusting God in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's very well said. And, and really, when we when we consider it, you know, just about every... You know, most of the examples that we have in Scripture, barring a few, are, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how to exactly phrase it, except that they're they're people that are flawed, and the text does nothing to hide their flaws. Um, you know, I can I can think of a handful of people in Scripture that you find no ill dealing or mistakes with I'm thinking of Joseph I'm thinking of Daniel um, but even then we recognize through the implications of the text that that they you know for example in Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 he includes himself in with the sins of Israel and with Judah and so you know these men were not perfect none of them were and uh, it's important for us to see that, and that, that helps us to recognize that, you know, we're not going to be perfect. Um, if, they, if they didn't do everything exactly, then how can we think that we've got this all taken care of, that we've got this, um, <clears throat> you know. So, and, and so generally I think you find in Scripture that, that you know, even in terms of, and, and the bigger issue here, the bigger symbolism that's going on here is baptism right when you come out of the baptismal waters that doesn't mean that you automatically have everything figured out and so much of what is going on 
with baptism, the majority of things that are said about baptism in the New Testament talks about, hey, that thing that you went through, here's what that meant. Uh, here's what here's some of the symbols that are associated with it. You know, again, First Corinthians ten. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of sort of far-reaching implications in this event. Well, even before yeah. you get to the New Testament, you have this reminder come up, like in yeah. Deuteronomy chapter eleven. Uh, if you look at the first seven verses, he talks about the fact that he says, "You shall love the Lord your God." And always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments. And he says, Know this day I'm not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. And he goes on to talk about the different things that they had actually seen God do, including allowing them to cross the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. So this reminder to be faithful is also based on God's awesome power. Now, coming back to what you were saying, if God used the salvation he provided for them as an encouragement for them to remain faithful in every circumstance, I think that's something that we need to consider about when we're thinking about the connection to baptism. Mm -hmm. We are not going to be faithful the way that we should be unless we remember and respect the kind of salvation that God has provided for us. The fact that we couldn't do it ourselves. The fact that God really did provide a way for us to be saved. The fact that God really did take care of our problem with the enemy so that we could serve him the way that we should. Yeah, and you really see that um, in the Psalms quite a bit. Uh, Amen. You know how far those implications go. So, not to get too, um, I don't know, too lost in, in, in that, but the third book of the Psalms, Psalm 73, uh, beginning, um, the third book of the Psalms, uh, all the way through 89, Psalm 89, the Exodus is mentioned more in that section of the Psalms than any other section of the Psalms. And, uh, almost like any other place in the Bible outside of the book of Exodus, um, and it's interesting the way that they reflect on it. And I think there are some connections to how we can think about just like we talked about our baptism. Um, but like, so Psalm 74, for instance, uh, you know, the psalmist is reflecting on some circumstances that, uh, he's in a place of deep and grievous suffering and in Psalm 74, he says, Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food uh, for the creatures of the wilderness. And he says all of that to give himself assurance of God's favor and love and power in ways that lead him to trust in God in the darkness of his circumstances. So for instance, verse 20 says, consider the covenant, the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. So he's, he's yearning for an Exodus 15 result. Um, and he knows that God can do it because of the past. And um, just, I don't know, just to show this thread really quick, um, Psalm 76 verse four, um, 
It says, you are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into the deep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a deep sleep. You, even you, are to be feared. Who may stand, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? And then you look at Psalm 77. Uh, Psalm 77. Um, Verse 12 says, I'll meditate on his works and his wonders. Um, Verse 15, he mentions the salvation of his people. And in verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may, might, may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And it just goes, it goes on and on. Psalm 78 reflects on that. Psalm 80, 81, 79, 89. You know, and, and it's just amazing the applications they make, even though that had happened so long in the past. They recognize as an anchoring point for their faith that what God did for his people even in their affliction, and even in times where they're suffering so so deeply that it seems like everything of the covenant that God made with them seems to be failing all around them, they reassure themselves that the Exodus was an eternal revelation of God's never-ending faithful character. And so they know that God will act again, always, in full consistency with what he revealed on the day that he led them out of Egypt. Um and I think there, there are applications we can make in the next section about that. But I just think the way the psalmists reflected on that and when they reflected on that is just really, really amazing. And not only that, you also had the, you have the, the, the yearly memorial celebration of that salvation from Egypt right. in the Passover. Yeah. So the entirety of the Exodus account would be remembered every year. They would have an entire dedicated uh, time of remembrance to the Exodus account, both the things that happened in Egypt and as they came out, uh, so that there would be, so that they would, you talked about that anchoring point, well, they would review that anchoring point. They would go back to yeah, that anchoring point right. when they were talking about what they were going to do. And one one other thing that I think needs to be pointed out is that um, occurrences like this in the biblical record are actually very rare. I think people have a misconception right. that you know yeah. God is was always doing these wonderful, amazing things. And uh, but again, I, I think we made the point um, the past couple of episodes that that the things that God did to Egypt, He never really did to any other nation, not in that direct, clear way. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the fact of how He's saving His people, even later on uh, when the children of Israel are in exile in Babylon. You know, God calls them out of Babylon. But how does he do that? Well, with the decrees of certain kings. He doesn't do that with a direct hand like he does here. And uh, so it's it's very important, especially when we get into conversations about, well, you know, God's, God's doing miracles all the time. Well, okay, you know, what do you see that in Scripture? I mean, the majority of the miracles that you see are in the time of Jesus. And I don't think that that's uh, a coincidence. I think God is, is showing his, his uh, servant, his, his son, to be 
uh, all the splendor that he is by showing all these great signs and wonders. And there were more signs and wonders in that time than any other time in history, I believe. But so another thing to notice here too, uh, and I was just, this is just on my mind The I, I think this is similar in some ways to the victory on Mount Carmel when Elijah is triumphs over, you know, God triumphs really over the prophets of Baal and Astaroth. And, uh, that's a huge victory moment, but you compare and contrast what happens directly after Jezebel's like, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah runs, he leaves, he's terrified. Uh, and, and he's down. He says, I'm, I'm no better than my father's, you know, it's not. And I think the implication is that he had hoped that Israel would, would actually be faithful for once in their life as a nation, Northern Israel in the divided kingdom. Um, but you know, you compare and contrast. I mean, this is this is a sense where God saves His people, and there's a joyous uh, sense that follows this. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, even even after that, there's going to be some issues, right? But uh, but there's a joyous sense after this. Um, but I, I think just overall, you've got a sense where you know God works in the way that He's going to work. You know, and uh, I think it's important that we don't have the mis- that misconception that, you know, oh, well, God was just always doing these miraculous supernatural uh, things all throughout Scripture. No, and, and you make a good point because this does stand out like it does. This is something that, mm-hmm. it, that they refer to often because it was so singular of an event. Uh, not only when they mm-hmm. cross the Jordan, you ha- I mean, the only t- you have a very few times that you have uh, uh, the crossing of a body of water like this. You have with the Red Sea, and then you have later on, you have the crossing of the Jordan. Uh, But when that happens, they're about to go invade Jericho. And Rahab straight up tells them that they were scared because of what happened when they came out of Egypt. It was such a singular Mm -hmm. event that the entire world knew about it. And we're going to talk about that next week uh, when we're looking at chapter 15. Because the kind of salvation that God provided for his people in coming out of Egypt was going to cause fear to happen in the heart of the nations that they were going to dispossess. And of course, when that does happen, that's a fulfillment of exactly what uh, the Song of Moses says. But again, that's, that's next week. Right. Yeah, I think another interesting theme is um, just the the time of the day when they were delivered, when uh, God caused the Red Sea to separate. Um, well, I guess I should go back and make sure I mention the talk about the in God verse twenty seven. Talking about day, talking about day uh, daybreak. There it is. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's fourteen twenty seven. Yep, Turned to its normal state at daybreak. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So just how all of this was happening at the dawning of the day, I think is is uh, really significant, you know, because in Malachi 4 um, and other places as well, you know, God uses the dawning of the day to refer to salvation quite a bit. Um, So Malachi 4, which, you know, would have been at the close of Old Testament revelation, says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And that, and the day is coming 
the day that is coming will set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. You know, in that language, you know, it sounds like this new exodus that God was bringing. And in Luke chapter 1, 78 and 79, the father of John the Baptist, uh, Zacharias, um, I think picks up on similar language and says, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Um, so Zacharias, I think, just even in the overall speech he's giving there, um, almost like a hymn, uh, verse 68 through 79. You know, he's recognizing that God is fulfilling all of his promises uh, in verse 74 to rescue them from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him. You know, so Zacharias is using Exodus language. And just one last one, and then I'd be interested in what your guys thoughts are and any other connections you have to, to that idea. But Psalm 110, um, you know, a Psalm that is quoted more in the new Testament than any other place in the old Testament. Uh, Jesus quotes this Psalm as referring to himself in verse one, but in verse three, it says your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Uh, so again, you have this idea of God's power being magnified through his ruler, his king. Um, it mentions in verse uh, four, he's going to shatter, you know, these, these people who are his enemies. He's going to win this victory. And in verse three, from the womb of the dawn, you know, people would volunteer to serve him in the day of his power. So you just have lots of language, you know, again, that almost like this, this dawning of salvation, this rising of the sun, and God is bringing his salvation at the beginning of the day. Um, you guys have any thoughts or connections you can think of on that? Well, Tolkien thought that was pretty important. That's what he used for talking about the return of Gandalf. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think the interesting phrase there is the willingness, the, you know, your people shall be volunteers. Uh, and, and that, mm -hmm. that contrasts a lot with this passage because the people are not very willing. Um, and, and so that's, you know, there's something to think about there because your people shall be volunteers. Well, who really is his people? You know, just, just because these people went through this process didn't mean that they were willing I think you have some of them that are willing. Obviously, Moses is is all in, and I think by this time, right. hopefully, Aaron and Miriam are all in. Uh, and I think there's a certain number of people that are all in. Uh, I don't know how many of the Israelites that were that, that that were, but generally, we find an image that they're scared to death. I mean, they're terrified. And I think there's an aspect too. You think about viewing all this like. Um, just the massive scale of this, like I would be terrified from, you know, just, just being in the midst of this water. And it's just like, what is about to happen? You know, if, if we're in the middle of this and this mm -hmm. all collapses down on us, what, you know, uh, but 
so it, it really comes down to trusting the Lord, having a willingness to trust in the Lord. And if you're willing, if you're a volunteer, then that really means that you're part of his people. That's that's at least my reading of it. Now, I think that you're I think you're right. The reticence of some of the people to follow um, is demonstrated as being terrible unfaithfulness, especially mm-hmm. given all the things that God had done for them. It it's not very positive about those who uh, can't muster enough faithfulness to do something with the blessing that they've been provided. And God's demonstration of faithfulness is not always met with faithfulness in the people. And that is perpetually, uh, you know, uh, Brian was talking about the different places in the Psalms and all the memorial Psalms that talk about God's work mm. that he had done with them. You, you read about Nehemiah's prayer. You have all these mm. different places where yeah. God's faithfulness is always underlined. And it's just not met with faithfulness right. on the part of the people. And it's, it's never positive. Oh, so interesting. So I think it's, I think Stephen, you're right. God saves these people because of him, not because of them. Right. He doesn't save them because they're so awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> he saves them because he is. That is so important. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Because that what that does is that magnifies the glory of his faithfulness so that we can have encouragement and hope. You know, that reminds me of Second Timothy chapter two, where it says, you know, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Right. Um, you know, it reminds me of Romans five, uh, verse 21, um, that grace reigns in righteousness, you know, because the principle uh, even mentioned just a little bit earlier than that, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Um, you know, so that, that just magnifies God's faithfulness, his self-sacrificing nature, his patience, his mercy, his forgiveness. Yeah, that's amazing. And his love and kindness is everlasting. Correct me if I'm, yeah, amen. Cor- right, correct me if right. I'm wrong here, uh, but aren't there Egyptians with the Israelites at this point? Oh yeah, they went out of uh, mm-hmm. they went out of Egypt a mixed multitude. Yeah. So so he 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 saves Gentiles with them through this baptism, and that's that's fascinating to me. Like they're they're along with them for the ride, and uh, certainly you know I think about this in terms of first century, you know, mindset of the Pharisees and so on and so forth. That you know the thought was if if a Jew had been in the marketplace then he would need to ritually cleanse himself just in case he had brushed up against a Gentile. Um, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's so, it becomes so absurd when you think about it and you think about this and it's just like, well, he's got Gentiles right here and he's saving them. He's providing, you know, an exit for them from a, a terrible ruined pagan nation. Um, so, you know, why wouldn't God save the Gentiles? Um, so I, I, I guess I think about that and it's just like, wow. Um, it's just sort of amazing that, that all through this, you have that consistent message that, you know what? God loves everyone. God wants to save everyone. God has a care for, for each one who's willing to follow him. Yeah. And that would make me think that, uh, you know, the Egyptians who were with them, you know, if they had family in the Egyptian army, you know, um, it would solidify in their mind. Like that's not my family anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like my, 
my ties to Egypt. That's, that's just no longer who I am. Um, and that also reminds me of Colossians two fifteen. you know, cause Colossians 10 through 14 has so many ties to the principles of the Exodus to our baptism, but we've already talked about that. But I think verse 15, there's one, one more thing that I think is so important. Uh, mentions in verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You know, and I just imagine everything we've talked about, the way that the Egyptians among the Israelites and the Israelites looking on the Egyptians, you know, they saw the Egyptians obviously as a people to be feared. They saw the Egyptians as people that were their masters and had power over them. And they were, they were talking like that, like we've mentioned, even at the waters before they separated, they, they wanted to go back to serve the Egyptians again, you know, right before the Exodus. And, you know, and I think that's the same principle for us in verse 15 of Colossians 2 is, you know, God has so marvelously triumphed over all of the powers of the world that it should just nullify our desire to go back or to allow people to be masters over us in a way that only God can be our master. And we um, like Colossians two sixteen says, oh, I'm sorry, no, go no, ahead. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really agreeing with you because one of the things he's also doing is he's demonstrating his power even over their gods. Israel still had also problems right. thinking yes. that their gods were so important and big. You can see this with some of the stuff that they engage in when they, when they, uh, the golden calf incident, but also even some of the, like, the later idolatry problems that they maintained. God is not only showing that he is stronger than Egypt, he's showing that he's stronger than their gods. Right. Yeah. And so the principalities and the things that they're, they're worried about, yes, you have the human element, but you also have their religious elements. Right. Yes. Hmm. Yep. And I, and I think that's exactly the, the point that Paul gets into in verse 16 and forward, you know, that the teachings the religion, the philosophies, if there's anything that men teach that in any way conflicts with the substance of Christ, it has no value at all. You know, and he goes so far to say is no one is to be your judge in regard to these things that, you know, in Christ you've been set free from. So he says in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you from your prize by delighting in self-abasement and these other things. And Verse 23 says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And I think the idea is God redeemed us to serve one master, one Lord. And that Lord has displayed his power over all other powers and his authority over all other authorities. And he made a public display of that for our sake.
So as we move into application, I just want to sort of revisit something that Patty Kendallball said in the episode that he was on. Um, you know, back when we finished up Genesis, a point he made about Joseph and his family going to Egypt that was just so such an awesome point was that uh, I believe he said something along the lines of we all have an Egypt that we need to leave um, in the sense that so Joseph and his family were going to Egypt and, you know, Jacob and his family came there and, and, and basically even as they're going in there. And as we mentioned earlier, there was the mindset that, you know, this is not our eternal home. This is not where we're going to hang our hat and our nation will be here for generations. There's going to come a time when we leave and we go back to the land that God promised our fathers. Uh, so, if we were to take this story and sort of view it as a parable, and I don't mean that, you know, some people think when you say a parable, well, that this, you know, this story didn't really happen. No, I, I, I happen to believe that each of Jesus's parables uh, actually did happen in some shape or form at some time. Um, that's just me personally, but when I, when you look at it through this lens, it should help us to understand that, okay, let's apply all this properly. Who, who's, who's Pharaoh, right? And I keep turning over to my mind, is, is, is Pharaoh uh, Satan? Is Pharaoh me? Is Pharaoh just my will? I think it could be any of those things. Who is, who is deciding to keep my soul in sin? Who is making the decisions to keep me out in the world? And, and I think really it just comes down to ourselves. The reality is when we abandon God, when we don't have God as our father, as our leader, as our provider, uh, if we don't recognize that he can be the one to help us have our own personal exodus, then, you know, we're, we're going to be just like Pharaoh. We're going to be stubborn. We're going to be hard hearted and say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to let this go. I'm not going to let this lifestyle go. Um, and, and, and that, that story, this story should show us that that leads to nothing but ruin and misery and just destruction of our lives and our families. Uh, and, and I just think it's so powerful that God has given us this and shown us this to show that, hey, this is what I do to a proud man. This is what I do to someone who has no regard for me. I'm going to beat him down over time. And over time, you know, the more he fights against me, the more he tries to set himself up as a little God, you know, little G God, uh, you know, the more, uh, more of a fool he's going to make himself, uh, the more disaster is going to come upon him. But if I want to be his people, then it means that I, I need to embrace that I've got to get out of Egypt. I've got to leave. Mm-hmm that that aspect of, of my life as it is. I, I'd love you guys' thoughts on that, though. Mm. Well, leaving the things that are comfortable are never easy. Leaving the things that we felt were powerful right. is always a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the New Testament makes that really clear. Yeah. We not only 
have to follow God where he calls us to go and leave those things behind. But we have to trust that he will be there with us when we don't have them. Uh, coming out of a culture is always kind of a difficult thing, especially if that's the only thing we've known. You talked to Stephen earlier about this idea of being a slave nation and having this kind of slave mentality of this idea that we don't really have the strength to do for ourselves. And we start to tell ourselves a story about our past. I mean, later on, we're going to read about the fact that Israel perpetually tells themselves a story about Egypt and how great it was. You know, the desiring of the leeks and onions and the wanting to go back to those things that were comfortable. When we get to places like Hebrews, you have an entire group of people who had been a part of a culture, had left that culture, but it seems are thinking about going back to that culture. And so the Hebrew writer makes the case very strongly that you can't go back there. There is no there there. I find it ironic, you know, in, you know, in myself that, that it is Hebrews that is the book that talks about a people not being able to go back to where they were from and being out here in the wilderness mm-hmm. going toward a place. Well, he's talking to the same kind of people who had to leave Egypt. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Galatians uh, 4 and 5. I mean, really the whole letter to the Galatians, but uh, Galatians 4 9, for instance. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be slaved, to be enslaved all over again. Um, chapter five, verse one, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You know, and it seems like, it seems like he compares the idolatry that the Galatians came out of in chapter four uh, to the Jews and how they were treating the law of God absent of faith in Christ. Um, that really it's ultimately you're serving the things of the flesh. You're giving power to worldly elemental things where there is actually no power and no substance. So you're idolizing something and putting it in the position of God and giving it the power of God when it, it doesn't have that power at all. That, um, that connects back to what you were saying out of Colossians. Mm, you know, in Colossians, yeah, you had the, yeah. the, the dual warning. He says, don't get involved in all the philosophy, but also don't get involved in a whole bunch of Jewish mysticism. Either. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I think one application from that principle is in chapter 5, 13 and, uh, so, through 15. Um, you know, because ultimately, like, God was trying to direct them to a life of liberty connected to him and with his people. And I think when we invest ourselves where there is substance and power, it protects our hearts from misunderstanding or being deceived into associating power where there is none. You know, so Galatians five thirteen says, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So it seems like Paul makes the point that the Galatians going back to things that don't have any power and being in danger of being enslaved all over again, you know, he addresses the, the problems in terms of doctrine. But it seems like near this part of the letter, he brings up the point that actually you're just not loving one another. You're not investing into each other. 
And the reason why you're so vulnerable to this false way of thinking is you're just thinking in a worldly way and your relationships aren't based in the spirit of God. And so I think one application is just examining my relationship with the local church. Um, I think that's where it becomes very humbling is liberty is in serving the brethren. Liberty is in serving the brethren in a spiritually focused way. And if, if I don't have good relationships with the brethren, if I'm not even making an attempt to have spirit-filled relationships with the brethren, then it could very well be that I'm deceived and that I am living enslaved and I'm not walking in the liberty that God has set me free into. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned that this is a baptism. Um, I think it's just very important that we make it clear to our audience. I don't know how many people <laughs> listen to us who are familiar with the truth concerning baptism in scripture. Um, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of false doctrine out there. Um, Bryant, Jeremy, and I all believe that baptism is not just an outer sign that you show others of what God has already done in your heart. We believe baptism to be effective toward salvation, directly causative toward salvation. Uh, not that it's the only thing, but that it's in baptism. And, you know, we base this on Roman, you know, passages like Romans 6 and, and Colossians 2 and 3. And other other uh, passages, of course, that uh, baptism is where we come in contact with the blood of Christ. And it's the blood of Christ that saves us from our sins. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses us and makes us righteous before God. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I just want to share that. And, and if anybody has any questions about that, feel free to email us or message us about that. We'd love to talk to you about it. But I bring that up to make the point that you know, when, when we're baptized, we're going to have the same issues, I think, that Israel faced as a nation. And again, Israel, you know, part of, one of the reasons I believe that the Old Testament was written was to show us that, you know, Israel, we're Israel. This is our relationship with God. And what we need to learn from this is that, you know, just because I've been baptized, that doesn't mean that I'm always going to do the right thing. Just because I've been baptized, that doesn't mean that I'm always going to have the right position or, you know, do say the right things or even, you know, truly be faithful to God. And even as we, as we are baptized, you know, Satan will almost immediately try to, you know, get into our ear and say, you know, yeah, yeah you're faithful right now, but you know, that's, that's going to change. You know, I'm going to have you eventually. And, and, mm -hmm. and so that's, that's Pharaoh pursuing them, right? That's Pharaoh coming after them. Now, I don't know if Pharaoh was literally there on the battlefield or not, but, my whole point is that Satan will try to pursue us even after our baptism. But this story tells us, and, and the scripture should tell us that God is able and willing to protect us from him and he will vanquish him in the end. He will, he will be in the lake of fire and brimstone as revelation tells us. Uh, so I think I just think it's important for us to make clear to our audience, like this is what we believe about baptism, by the way, uh, because the other aspects of that, you know, if you want to say this is just an outer thing of what God's already done, that that doesn't even really mesh with what we see right here in the story. They were not truly free until Pharaoh's army was extinguished. Uh, you know, if 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 this had not happened. Pharaoh's army would have pursued them. 
and they would have captured them or killed them. So I just think it's very important for us to, to mention as we continue to apply this. Yeah. And I, I think to say it a little more, a little more strongly, um, I don't mean this as a corrective statement because <laughs> we, we do believe that, but I, I don't think it's so much about us believing it, but the plain reality, that's just what the Bible says. Right. Right. And so whether or not we believe it or someone else believes it, that doesn't you know, matter. Acts two thirty eight, right? They're told to repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, and and what the Bible says on that is consistent, and it's not going to change, no matter who believes it or how many people uh, believe or not believe that. And so, just as God did the exodus he brought them through the water and whether or not they were going to allow that to happen or believe it it's still that's that's what happened you know i think similarly you know that's just plainly what the bible says about things you know and 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 that we talked about that when we discussed the the chapters at toward the end of the plagues that they, even there were some egyptians who were able to see the writing on the wall to reference another to reference another biblical place, but they were able to see what was really happening, and they said, "You know, we need to do something different. We've got to we've got to get in line with this. This is re- this is a real thing." So you can talk about whether you believe it or not, but sooner or later you have to do something. Gentlemen, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Absolutely, thank you, thank you, Steve. All right, uh, next time, Lord willing, we're going to be going into Exodus fifteen, and until then. We bid you to study well and to be lights to God's glory.
The music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.